What would it take to turn any one person into a soldier? To grab a weapon and stand a post, to charge the hill, and take the fight to the enemy? This isn't a rhetorical question, dear listeners. It's always good for someone to know what it is they're willing to fight for. Most would fight to defend themselves and their loved ones. Others might sign up to defend those who aren't able to defend themselves. The very old, the very young. Defend your land, defend your nation. These are popular ones both today and all throughout history. Certainly, there are less sanguine answers to this question as well. There have been plenty of incidents and violence and battles fought simply to exterminate someone or some idea. The battlefield is not merely reserved for heroes, after all. There's as many answers as there are people in the world, but that willingness to fight can make or break battles, even wars. Highly motivated, highly disciplined troops have undergone severe stress and have come out on top when troops with better equipment or more manpower broke and fled. This confidence, motivation, and willingness to fight is famous in military science. It's called morale. It's not limited to the battlefield as well, even in corporate environments. What's the state of morale? But there's a problem when it comes to talking about morale. How do you quantify it? You can't distill a soldier and say that he has this much morale or that much morale. It's not equipment. There are no thresholds. There are no SI units. There's nothing we have that can measure it in an absolute sense. Talking about morale means using gut feelings and military instinct, using relative terms and even simple guesses. Sometimes even when combat is joined, the sides find out that the morale is entirely different from what they thought. When the morale is finally put to the test, that's when the true level is known. On the plains of Anatolia, a long battle would pit two armies' morale against each other. And this battle would become a battle of will, as much as it was a battle of blades and bows. This is a battle of Doriolaeum. In its simplest form, the Crusades were a series of religious wars. This was hardly a novel concept in the 11th century. The Umayyads and various powers of Western Europe had been waging war on the Iberian Peninsula for generations. The First Crusade, as it's known to history, began in 1095 with a message for help from the Byzantine emperor Alexios Komnenos. Now, Alexios Komnenos is one of the most fascinating emperors of the Byzantine Empire in its entire 1100-year history. Since 1071, at the disastrous Battle of Manzikert, with the capture and humiliation of Emperor Romanus IV, the Byzantine Empire had been feeling a lot of pressure from the Seljuk Turks, and had lost a lot of territory in their vital Anatolian heartland. Romanus IV was deposed, and Michael VII was installed, but he resigned facing pressures from his senior generals, one of whom, Nikoferos III, took the throne. He, however, was isolated and found little support, and he was deposed in favor of Alexios I, thanks to tremendous political maneuvering on the part of his mother, Anna Dalasana. Alexios was a highly motivated and incredibly intelligent general, administrator, and politician, and he embarked on an aggressive string of reforms to stabilize the currency, reform the army, and handle invasions to the empire 
from all sides. Using some solid generalship, paying the Kaiser to attack his Norman enemies in Italy, and tricky diplomacy which allowed him to ally with a 40,000 large horde of Cumans, just as his city was under attack by the Sultan of Rome's brother, Alexios was able to beat back the invaders. But his empire was just a sliver of what it used to be. If he was going to restore the empire, he needed more victories against his enemies, and he needed to recover that vital lost territory. On that front, Alexios was fortunate. He was not facing a united Seljuk Empire. When Malik Shah I died in 1092, his empire was split between his sons. His son, Khalij Arslan, formed the Sultanate of Rum, naming it after Rome, and Khalij had every intention of making his lands as glorious as Rome was in its heyday. Khalij was a clever administrator and a capable general, especially in using his light cavalry and mounted archers. But Khalij had a large family and many brothers, and he faced much resistance to his rule from their domains in Syria and Persia. The Arslans were not the only powerful dynasty in that area. The Danishimeds, who had their own lands in eastern Anatolia, and the Artukids further in Mesopotamia, both maintained independence and backed that claim with their own troops. Khalij couldn't send all of his forces to attack the Byzantines without leaving his east and south dramatically exposed. This gave Alexios an opportunity to win, but he needed more troops. And to do that, Alexios turned his attention to the west. Alexios was hoping for a small force of skilled knights from Western Europe to form a highly experienced mercenary army to form a corps to supplement his own forces. Alexios had written to the Pope, appealing to a spirit of pan-Christian unity. This wasn't the first time that this notion of a grand military expedition eastward had happened. After the Battle of Manzikert in 1074, Pope Gregory VII had appealed to the various European kings to march in mutual aid of the Byzantine Empire, and even personally desired to head the armies as spiritual leader so none of the secular nobles would have to cede command to a stranger. But this was largely ignored, as the Turkish conquest of Anatolia was more piecemeal, performed mostly by independent bailiks, which are the Turkish equivalent of dukes, rather than a single unified army, which didn't appear as threatening. There were also cultural and theological schisms between the Greek East and the Latin West. Gregory himself had much to deal with domestically, as he was intent on reforming corrupt practices of the Catholic clergy, including mandating clerical celibacy, forbidding the sale of clerical offices that was called simony, and reducing the influence of kings on appointing bishops. The last of these led to a long war with Kaiser Henrik IV of the Holy Roman Empire, which included excommunicating the Kaiser and supporting a rival emperor, and the Kaiser taking Rome, ousting Gregory, and installing Clement III as antipope. When Alexios Komnenos sought aid again in the 1090s, the Byzantine emperor was in dire straits, having lost much of their territory to Norman conquest in the west, as well as Turkish conquest in the east. This time, though, the call was received not by Gregory VII, but by Pope Urban II. And Urban II had one skill that Gregory lacked. He was a master politician. 
Gregory the Seventh, so it's believed, was the son of a Tuscan blacksmith who entered the monastery at a very early age. Despite his lofty position, he was a rough-spoken man and elected by a populist outcry of the people, and he had thus used that outcry to embark on his reforms of the Catholic Church. His aggressive demeanor and hardline attitude won him few friends among the various moderates and secular rulers of Europe. He could rule in matters of faith, but a military expedition was considered beyond his traditional role as spiritual authority of Catholicism. Urban II was a protege of Gregory's and truly did believe in the same Gregorian reforms, but he had come from a French noble family and had one of the finest educations that medieval Europe could offer. It wasn't all sunshine and lollipops for Urban, though. He had inherited a papacy in crisis, as he was not the only man claiming to be Pope. Clement III was still occupying Rome, and Urban's own power among Catholics was not very secure from his papacy in exile in France. To Urban, there was a lot of reasons to engage in this grand military gesture. In the political sense, it allowed him to assert political power over Catholics, perhaps even to restore his papacy and seat in Rome. Once there, he could continue the reforms of his mentor to reduce and eliminate corruption within the clerical ranks. It allowed him a way to forcibly end the conflicts brewing between him and the Holy Roman Empire and France without victory or surrender by taking creative third option. He was fighting France because he excommunicated the French king for adultery. It allowed him to crack down on nightly violence that had expanded ever since the collapse of the Carolingian Empire. Two centuries ago, such violence had been roundly condemned by the church. In the religious sense, it also allowed him a chance to reunite the schism between East and West. Forty years ago, the Pope and Patriarch of Constantinople mutually excommunicated each other over various theological and political reasons. While modern historiography views this mutual excommunication as the start of the Great Schism between the Catholic and Orthodox churches, to contemporary observers, it was not considered as significant as later events like the sack of Constantinople or the massacre of the Latins would be. It was still, however, a rift, and closing it would add further legitimacy to Urban's papacy and improve the strength of the church. It also would allow a dramatic victory against the Muslims who had conquered the culturally significant cities of Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem centuries prior. All of these problems could be addressed by a single solution, albeit a very sweeping and grandiose one. And so with that in mind, Pope Urban II made a fiery speech at Clermont, condemning alleged atrocities performed against unarmed religious pilgrims and exhorting a grand pilgrimage east that would assist the Byzantines and restore Jerusalem. If the chronicler Robert the Monk is to be believed, this speech concluded with a spontaneous cry among the assembled of Deus Volt, translated from the Latin meaning God wills it. There were many Europeans that answered the Pope's call to march, including a large group of peasants and poor knights that would form the People's Crusade. The actual First Crusade, though, was arranged by a group of nobles who agreed to march out at separate times and meet in the city of Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. Three of the most notable nobles would be Godfrey of Bouillon, Bohemond of Taranto, and Raymond of Toulouse. Godfrey was the Duke of Lower Lorraine and a servant of Kaiser Henrik IV. 
He was a very capable general who spent the span of 1076 to 1087 regaining his lands and fighting Pope Gregory VII in Heinrich's war to install the anti-pope. But upon hearing the call, Godfrey mortgaged his lands to the Catholic Church and raised an army mostly from the area of Lotharingia. That's a modern-day area where France and Germany meet. That has such areas like Verdun, Metz, and Köln. Bohemond of Tarento was the son of the famous, or infamous, depending on how you view his exploits, Norman Duke of Apuila, Robert Giscard. Giscard means the fox, and Bohemond learned much from his tricky father. Bohemond had waged many battles against Alexius Komnenos as well as Bohemond's own brother, Roger Borza, and was perhaps the most experienced and most capable of the crusading nobles when it came to the military sciences. Depending on where you get your sources from, Bohemond is a very, very different person. According to the Gesta Francorum, who was written by an unknown author connected with the Franks, believed to be a common soldier who fought in most of the First Crusade under Bohemond, and then later Raymond of Toulouse, Bohemond was an extremely pious person, who was inspired to join the Crusade after meeting a group traveling to Constantinople in 1097. Once he met them, he immediately went home, raised money and troops, and marched east. If you believe other sources, such as Geoffrey Malaterra or Anna Comnena, in her own work, The Alexiad, Anna Comnena was Alexios Comnenos's daughter and a prominent Byzantine historian, Bohemond was motivated principally to gain lands and titles of his own. Anna further states that Bohemond had his eyes sent on Antioch before he ever set foot in Anatolia. Either way, Bohemond raised an army, a small one, but very well experienced and very well equipped and headed east, going through much of the same territory he invaded some fifteen years prior in the western Balkans. Raymond IV of Toulouse was an old, famous knight, around fifty-five years old when the crusade first started. Deeply religious and deeply combative, Raymond raised a truly massive army from the area of Provence, that's southeastern France. He considered himself the military commander of the crusading army, given that he had the largest contingent and traveled with the actual head of the crusading force, the bishop and papal legate, Adhemar of Lepuy. There were far more nobles that joined the crusade, from the lofty Hugh of Vermandois, who was the brother to the king of France, two sons of William the Conqueror, and Count Robert of Flanders. Discussing all of the famous luminaries of European nobility on the crusade would take hours. What's important about it, though, is its significance. These myriad nobles joining the First Crusade shows so many disparate regions that were represented into one single force. The Western Roman Empire and the Carolingian Empire had fallen. Europe had been divided into feuding kingdoms and principalities. This was the most united Western Europe had ever been for centuries. Given that many of the Crusading Knights and nobles may have had political rivalries, Bishop Adhemar was considered a mediator, as well as a representative of the Pope. He could smooth over any secular tensions and remind the knights of their purpose, which was to march east and act as a single, unified army. Now this is important because one of the biggest misconceptions about the First Crusade is that it's viewed as a battle between Muslims on one side and Catholics on the other. That is a vast oversimplification for most of the Crusades, and especially for the first one. 
The Catholic side was actually a confederation of nobles who exercised great autonomy over their individual armies, and they engaged in semi-democratic war councils. At these councils, the nobles would strategize, suggest, threaten, ally, scheme, all of the sort of political action you would expect out of any good medieval politician. The Byzantine Empire was also allied with the Crusaders, though their goals were largely separate. The Byzantines were focused on the reclamation of vital territory in Anatolia. While the Seljuk Turks were considered one enemy from the Catholic point of view, there were actually multiple factions with their own political rivalries and goals. Khalij Arslan was the most notable enemy, but the Danish Meds of eastern Anatolia were loose allies with the Sultanate of Rum. This friction between the Sultanate of Rum, the Danish Meds, and the Artukids would be a significant strategic and tactical detriment for Khadij Arslan. This enormous host of Western Europeans was far larger than Alexios had hoped for, definitely far larger than he could command directly. Some of these crusaders had even attempted to pillage Constantinople for supplies. He took advantage of the group coming one at a time to meet them individually, asking for an oath to return formerly Byzantine lands to him in exchange for money, gifts, and honorifics for them, the generals, food and supply for their armies, as well as a contingent of Byzantine troops led by the general Tacticios. Godfrey swore the oath immediately, as did most of the other generals. Raymond declined, stating that he would only do so if the Byzantine emperor would personally join the crusade. Otherwise, he would swear a lesser oath, stating that he would do the Byzantine Empire no harm and work with Alexios against Bohemond if it came to it. The trek through Asia Minor was a long march through the dry desert, and tensions flared between the Byzantines and the Crusaders over the captured city of Nicaea, capital of the Sultanate of Rome. Alexios arranged to have the city surrender to him, and then refused to allow the Crusaders the chance to raid the Sultan's treasury. Alexios smoothed things over by bestowing much gold on the crusading nobles, and mentioned that his conduct was in keeping with their previous oath. This caused a minor political schism, but the alliance between the Byzantines and the Crusaders held as they marched east. Khalij Arslan, his relief effort to aid Nicaea failing, had realized the size and strength of this invading force, and knew that he could not simply sweep them into the sea. He looked to find a moment to attack them. First, he secured himself with the Danish Meds as a support force against these foreign interlopers, and then used his light cavalry to monitor and screen the Crusaders, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. When the Crusaders split their forces, with a smaller force under Bohemond to lead, and the larger force under Godfrey to march behind them, Khalij believed that he finally found his chance. This upcoming battle would be a clash of two military doctrines and the two competing doctrines would be seen in their equipment. Both cultures prided their cavalry as their main thrusting arm, but the two had entirely different conceptions of what cavalry was meant to do on the field. The Seljuk Turks migrated into Anatolia from the Eurasian steppes, and their equipment and doctrine paid homage to the steppe way of warfare. Their legendary riding grounds and horse ar archers were the pinnacle of the Seljuk way. The Seljuk cavalrymen was a horse archer and light cavalryman, skilled at the use of his mount to flank, to fire his composite bow, and move and retreat all at once. If the bow wasn't enough, this light horseman was also equipped with a heavy javelin and a curved sword that was designed specifically to fight from horseback. 
This made the Turkish force an incredibly mobile and flexible one. Their key technique was the feigned retreat. The light cavalry would dance circles with a quick attack, then feign a retreat and lead the pursuers into a trap, wheeling in, flanking, and surrounding their exhausted foe, cutting them to pieces. On the move, they were incredibly mobile, able to give a battle exactly where the general wanted. The crusader force was a bit more varied. Their signature unit and a key piece of their military doctrine was the heavy knight, a heavy cavalry soldier with a long chainmail hauberk, mail coif, and a large kite shield to protect from arrows. These were typically armed with lances, which they used for their thunderous charge, and then they'd switch to swords and maces. While these knights were mounted soldiers, they were also very skilled at fighting unmounted. Europe, after all, was a hereditary military aristocracy, and hand-to-hand -hand warfare was a critical component of education among well-off boys. Not every person could afford a knight's equipment, though, to include those heavy war horses. So much of the crusader force was infantry. While not every soldier could afford a male hauberk, and the ones that could definitely found it was worth the investment, almost all of them were able to equip themselves with large kite shields and helmets. Armor was expensive and very invaluable, but a large shield was cheap and could easily be hidden behind. You could hold a battle line with a shield and helmet, and a solid battle line could pin an enemy force while the knights charged on the flank and scattered the enemy like bowling pins. The Europeans also had a large number of non-combatants with them, camp followers that made much of pre-modern logistics. It's a common stereotype to think of camp followers as nothing more than mercenaries and prostitutes, and certainly both would be present, but more often they were smiths and stable hands, washerwomen and herbalists. Plenty of fighting men took their wives with them, who would mend their clothes and help tend to their injuries. A passing army was an opportunity for coin for the locals, and a lot of these non-combatants were religious pilgrims who were swept up in the further of the crusade and followed the knights along to visit Jerusalem. It's also important to take into account the experience that each foe had with the other. This is where the alliance with the Byzantine pays for itself. The crusaders had Turkish-style cavalry in the camp with them. They were under the command of the Byzantine general Tactikios, and they were called Turkopoles. That literally means sons of the Turks, troops that fought in the Turkish fashion for the Byzantines. So they knew what the light horse of the famous Seljuks were capable of. The Crusaders also had guides to help alleviate the lack of terrain knowledge. By contrast, the Turks had minimal exposure and experience with the European way of warfare. The armor, and especially the shields, were much heavier and more static than anything the Turks had been used to dealing with. To compensate, Khalij Arslan banked on his speed and flexibility to take the Franks by surprise, and so he prepared for a daring night attack to break the crusaders as they camped on the banks by the Thimbus River. In the early hours before sunrise, Khalij Arslan roused his men from rest and attacked the crusader camp whirling in and out with his mounted archers and using support fire from infantry bowmen firing from his fortified camp as the sun rose. With most of his camp sleeping and unable to armor themselves, the missile weapons of the Turkish cavalry were devastatingly effective against the crusader force. Scattered in their tents, Bohemond soldiers couldn't muster a coherent counterattack. 
Once the barrage of arrows would stop, the cavalry would dart in like lightning, slashing with their swords and retreating before any of the crusaders could challenge them, and then the bows would fire again. The non-combatants were especially vulnerable to the Turkish attack, not even having the padded gambesons of the fighting men to protect them, and their weapons, at best, were small knives and thrown stones. Khalij Arslan's tactic was splendidly executed. Taking advantage of their fast movement, the Sultan of Roum was using his strength in a way to defeat the thicker armor and tight formation of the Crusader way of warfare. He was attempting a technique called defeat in detail, hoping to smash the components of the Crusader force before they grew too large to deal with. This is a technique that Stonewall Jackson would use famously in his Shenandoah Valley campaign. The fast Turkish cavalry could outrun any attempt to flee, and they could handle a disorganized response very easily. Bohemond feared that the casualties would cause a panic and an overall rout. Early in the attack, he sent messengers to the forces behind him, but he had no way of knowing if they had found the armies of Godfrey and Raymond. So, Bohemond elected to go for the defense, to blunt the momentum of the Turkish attack, and ordered his men to form a ring with the non-combatants in the center and erect a shield wall. A shield wall is just as the name sounds, a solid line of shields, mutually supporting each other and overlapping, giving each man on the shield wall extra protection from his own shield and the shield of those next to him. This is an ancient technique. Early Bronze Age carvings depict men carrying overlapping shields in ancient Mesopotamia, and the technique still finds use in riot shields used by law enforcement today. It's an incredibly simple technique. All it requires is holding the shield and shoving forward. In melee combat, a shield wall uses the mass of the packed men with shields to break the enemy's formation. Once broken, the ranks behind the shields can attack, and the broken formation can have individual soldiers isolated and cut down. The phalanx formations of the Greek city-states in Macedonia were famous for this. Against the Turkish archers, though, the shield wall was not an offensive technique, but a defensive one, simply taking fire with their large kite shields as the minutes turned to hours. Even with the crusaders' armor, though, the momentum of the Turkish attack began to take its toll, and the shield wall was pushed back slowly, almost into the river. The wet soil spared the Normans from melee attacks, but they were still vulnerable to the heavy bow fire of the Turkish mounted archers. Small groups of knights would attempt a charge, but the Turkish cavalry was adept at fire and retreat tactics, and so any counterattack was ineffective. Khalij Arslan had set up a masterful relay system where his runners could resupply the archers as they returned. They didn't even need to dismount. Fulcher of Chartres was at Dorylaeum and wrote about the experience of being fired on. We were all indeed huddled together like sheep, trembling and frightened, surrounded on all sides by enemies so that we could not turn in any direction. We had no hope of surviving. But the expected rout when the lines would break and the people panic, never seemed to materialize. The Normans prided themselves on their fierce discipline, absolute loyalty to their comrades and valor against the enemy. These Normans were the descendants of adventurers. Bohemond's father, Robert Guiscard, had conquered southern Italy. Bohemond himself had been a vigorous campaigner and demonstrated his leadership ability and command time and time again. In this shield wall, with his back pressed to the river, 
Bohemond rode up and down the line of men, exhorting them to stand firm, using both inspirational words and reminders that they were in enemy territory and there would be no mercy for them if they broke. Inside the center, the non-combatants began to cheer for the knights. Priests began to hear confessions and sing hymns. The women of the camp would rush to the knights holding the line and pour water into their mouths so that they could keep up their strength. Just picture that. Hours upon hours of standing in the hot sun in heavy chainmail, holding up a shield as arrows constantly pour down on you. There is no hope of escape, and all the while the shield, the only thing that's saving you from the arrows of the enemy, is getting heavier and heavier. Every so often there's a scream when an arrow flies up over the wall and hits a non-combatant or finds a chink in the shield wall. Then, after a particularly fierce volley, an unknown woman runs up to you. She takes a water skin and pours it into your mouth. And when she's done, she crouches down, waits for the next volley to end, and runs back to get water for someone else. Behind you, the non-combatants are letting you know that they believe in you and your shield wall. Even the Turks recognized the grit and determination of the Norman enemy. Turkish sources of the battle all described the Normans as being men of iron. As the battle dragged on and the Normans held their line, reinforcements arrived from Godfrey's army, cutting their way through the Turkish lines to strengthen the Norman line. Contemporary chroniclers would say the knights were led by St. George, a Catholic warrior saint, and this was a very popular legend of the Crusades at the time. Modern historians state that the Turkish attack was blunted by the charge of the knights led by Godfrey of Bouillon. The Turks recognized immediately that they did not want to be caught in a hammer and anvil maneuver between Godfrey's cavalry and Bohemond's shield wall. Raymond of Toulouse arrived about an hour later, using the hills of the terrain to screen his movements, until he arrived on the Turkish flank with the majority of the crusader force, and completely stole the momentum out of the Turkish attack. With so many attacks coming from multiple directions, the mobility advantage of the light Turkish cavalry became much diminished, and Khalij Arslan ordered withdrawal back to his camp. This withdrawal was crushing to the Turkish morale. Khalij Arslan himself wrote about the ferocity of his enemies. When they draw close to their adversaries, they charge with great force like lions, which, spurred on by hunger, thirst for blood. Then they shout and grind their teeth and fill the air with their cries, and they spare no one. The common Turkish soldier had been sustaining an attack for hours, and that was every bit as tiring to them as it was to the enemy across the field. They had hoped for a quick victory to break the battle lines of the Normans before the rest of the large force could reinforce their advance, but no matter how many arrows were fired, that line held. Even when the Frankish counterattacks were beaten back, even when the enemy dead numbered in the thousands, the lines didn't break. And once the reinforcements arrived, the chance for a stunning victory to demoralize the rest of the enemy wouldn't materialize. Fortunately for Khaliz Arslan, he had not devoted his time solely to building his relay and pressing his attack. His troops had established a formidable camp with heavy defenses, and his withdrawal meant the crusader forces were no longer on his flanks. While the heavier armor of the crusaders made melee a daunting proposition, the Turkish steeds were still faster. His men still had the ability to move and fire 
and blunt a crusader attack. Kalija's foot archers had incredible range with their longbows, and those longbows had heavier arrowheads with better penetrative power against the Frankish armor. Bohemond's men were tired and wounded, and the reinforcements from Godfrey and Raymond were also weary, having marched at speed to relieve Bohemond's troops. Much of the crusader camp had been taken and its supplies were looted, carried back to the Turkish camp. If Kalij could hold the defense of his camp until nighttime, with his side having plentiful food stores and the others having marched ahead of theirs, this could worry them even further. Even if the Turks withdrew, they could use their superior speed to get away, burn everything useful, and sap the strength of the crusaders and prevent any counterattack, forcing them to rely on low levels of forage and pick them off easily, rehashing his defeat-in-detail strategy. This idea wasn't a bad one, given the changing circumstances that were on the field. However, there was another advantage that the Western invaders had over the Turks. They had far more men. With the Sultan fortifying his camp against advances from Godfrey, Raymond, and Bohemond, a detachment using local guides led by Bishop Adamar took advantage of Kalija's attention on the large army to march around the Turkish camp and attack it in the rear, surprising the Turks and causing the main army to surge forward. Kalij's foot archers were exposed to Bishop Adamar's attack and had to quit their volleys or be run down by the heavy horsemen. Without the ability to sustain an attack, there was nothing stopping the crusaders from using their superior numbers to surge forward. The victory was complete, and Kalij's Arslan ordered a full withdrawal, leaving the camp supplies and treasures behind, including great pieces of gold and jewels that were left in the sultan's personal tent. The victory at Dorylaeum provided a great boon for the crusaders, not just in money, but in the sustainability of their campaign. Kalija's retreat opened Anatolia up to continue the march, and their supply problems were temporarily solved by the spoils. Arslan himself would retreat to muster more troops and reach out to his brothers in Damascus and Aleppo to handle the threat. Notably, the two forces had much more respect for the other's warrior prowess than before the Battle of Dorylaeum. It doesn't happen often, especially in pre-modern records of history, where one side attempts to betray the other as valiant, brave, or intelligent. Usually chroniclers tend to over-exaggerate how many soldiers the enemy had, and tell whatever fictions of barbarism they could to heighten the heroism of their own side, usually for political propaganda reasons. While the former was very much the case, the latter didn't happen at Dorylaeum. One crusader source remarked that, no one could have found more powerful, braver, or skillful fighters than they, referring to the Seljuk Turks. Usually when this happens in primary sources, it's because the battle was particularly hard fought, and a few hours could have sent it in the other direction. The Crusades are filled with acts of ethnic and religious bloodshed, certainly, but there are exceptions to every rule, and on the sun-baked plains of Anatolia, such an exception was found in the sources that the Turks and Crusaders wrote about the other. This remarkable feat of endurance and stoicism was a testament to Bohemond's excellent generalship and the discipline of the Norman troops. More than that, though, it shows an amazing feat of morale, for the non-combatants to brave enemy fire and to continue to persevere despite what appears to be a hopeless situation. The capability for even non-combatants to endure fire 
is an important part of morale. The same feats of endurance that were found on Doriolaeum were what the English exhibited during the Blitz in World War II. This vital home front provides psychological comfort for the soldiers. When the non-combatants are struggling to support you, exposing themselves to great danger to do so, how can the soldier fail to do any less? When the people of your nation are counting on you to repulse the invader, how can you not fight with everything you have? On both sides, you can see that the morale that kept the soldiers fighting for hours, keeping them motivated to risk their lives, to protect the non-combatants, to resist the invasion, to protect their comrades, to bring glory to their people and their god. These stories are told time and again when soldiers take to the battlefield, carrying the things that brought them there in the corner of their minds. They brave the fury and terror of those battlefields throughout history. In a way, the ideas behind the soldier render them immortal and timeless, becoming as much an idea as they are a person, to take to the battlefield one more time. Thanks for listening.